Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross at the Local 10 WPLG Studios here in Miami. And it is September 12th, 2018. Kind of an, an ominous day here. Luke Doris mm-hmm. is with us here as, you know, we've been watching Hurricane Francis head toward the North Carolina coast. And it's scary. Yep, Florence. Hurricane Florence. Florence and it's a bad-looking storm. It is. It is. This looks like a... Uh, an epic hurricane disaster in the making and a very complicated one. And we'll talk about that uh, more in just uh, a moment. And uh, we're, we're also, uh, we've been watching uh, Isaac mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, we'll talk about Isaac just uh, briefly, but we're all conscious of the folks in Dominica and the uh, Caribbean islands that may be in the way of Isaac that are still suffering from, from last year. From just tremendous damage from last year they just they can't deal with much can they they can't and so uh, anyway we're very uh, conscious uh, about them and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about a lot of things today because we have the chief meteorologist from kprc in houston uh, on with us uh, this afternoon and he is going to talk about the year ago storm epic storm for them harvey and also ike where this is the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Ike. So we'll talk to Frank Billingsley here in just a couple of moments. The uh, podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. And remember, I said this is uh, today that we're taping this is September 12th, uh, Wednesday, September 12th, 2018. So if you're listening at some point in the future, obviously everything we talk about with Florence and uh, anything else current is not going to be valid. So check out Local10.com or your Max Tracker app or your uh, Local10 weather app uh, to get the latest information. All right, let's, um, let's talk about Florence for a second. So we have two issues with Florence, right? I've been calling it in my, in my uh, blog on, on Facebook, and uh, we also post it on Local10.com, uh, kind of a phase one and phase two mm-hmm. issue, although... That's becoming murkier because phase one of my thinking was the landfall of the hurricane and the storm surge and the highest winds and the damage caused by that. And then phase two in my thinking was the inland flooding and the persistent problem of the storm stalling. But uh, now it's not quite so clear. Phase one and phase two are not as clear as they seem to be just yesterday before the models came in yesterday afternoon. And wow, did they change quick, didn't they? they I did. mean, just in, in one run, it was a drastic change. And, and the Hurricane Center cone has changed drastically since just yesterday, too. With that, the eye somewhere, maybe just inland, just offshore, nobody knows where it would be. Uh, but the Euro, especially driving it further south. And then you have a, what, four day period where you're dealing with a hurricane up and down the East Coast uh, where it just drives its way further south, if that were to verify. So uh, it could be a long lived hurricane just scraping the shore, working its way south as it goes. But it could also be inland a little bit and be an epic flood with with uh, coastal effects diminishing, not stopping, mm-hmm. but diminishing as the storm weakens. And, and it's interesting that the Hurricane Center has not jumped on that idea of it staying offshore. Their cone clearly, um, most of the possible tracks take it inland and kind of stall it inland where it weakens, right? That's their their forecast. But the euro does not uh, think that, and the euro is traditionally our most reliable model. So we have to consider that as a possibility. All right, let's uh, tell you what. Be, uh, a man who <laughs> has dealt with this for his city in a slow-moving storm and forecasts that change. As I said, Frank Billingsley has, for more than 20 years, been the chief meteorologist at the NBC uh, station in Houston, KPRC. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. Luke, how are you? I know it's uh, and it's thrilling to watch these things, but this is going to be, as you know, I think just biblical proportions of rain. And Brian, I know you talked a lot about the the flooding and the surge. Don't forget, Wilmington has had 30 inches of rain already this summer. Yeah, it's the this wettest year the on wettest, record. Yes, it's been the wettest summer from South Carolina. Remember when Lynchburg was about to evacuate because they thought the dam was going to break because exactly. of the river. That was just a, a couple months ago. I mean, the, 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 the wettest summer really on record in many ways from South Carolina to Maryland. And, you know, Ellicott, Maryland had another thousand-year flood just this year. 
So it's you know it's uh, it's just been crazy rain for them. So all of those all of those trees are weak. They're all just sitting in mud. Every wind that just gust that comes along is going to blow those trees into power lines and onto trailer homes and onto roofs, and it's going to be really catastrophic in the just in the wind and tree sense. And then factor in the surge and the and the rain and the rivers going up and the, just the 20 inches of, of rain there might as well be 40 inches of rain uh, here where it's flat because that rain coming down the mountains has nowhere to go. But yeah, into the rivers it, it might be magnified more than that, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. It's yeah. just going to be horrible. Well, I mean, you remember uh, in 2015 when South Carolina had that massive flood, they had a record 24 inches of rain then, and they were just inundated with, with flooding. Uh, and that was two feet. And now this could be 40 inches in spots. Yeah, it's... Um, it's hard to imagine, and the thing that, that you uh, found out in Harvey and you experienced in Harvey to some degree, although it'll be even worse here if the wind continues to blow off the ocean, holding the rivers back and pushing ocean water into the rivers, into the uh, bays and the inlets, is that that water that falls over the land can't get out. You're absolutely right. It's just a damning effect because all of the, the continuing paddle wheel effect of just sitting there and pushing that surge in as all that rain is trying to find a place to go. And, of course, it's all gravity. It all goes from the mountains to the rivers and down into the, the Atlantic Ocean. But if that's stopped up with storm surge, it has nowhere to go but up. And so this could be flooding of really epic proportions, in, in, uh, especially along the coast of North and South Carolina. We dealt with that in the sense that Harvey came inland uh, about 30 miles and stalled, and just sat there over Victoria, Texas, to the southwest of Houston, and just sat there and sat there and sat there. And so we, we didn't have as much uh, effect of, of, a, of a damning effect like that, although we had some, but some, more than yeah. anything, we just had these constant feeder bands of six inches of rain per hour. Now, in the Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, I sat and watched three inches of rain per hour, and I thought that was just Noah had called on Houston. But six inches of rain per hour is just astronomical, and that's that's certainly what they could see out of this storm, especially as it just sort of moves slowly down the coast and then slowly into South Carolina. I'm thinking about building codes and how prepared they are on the southeast for a storm like this. Do, have they ever had uh, a storm that we can look back to in the history books and say, well, they've been through this storm uh, as, a, as a reminder? I'm, uh, like Hugo comes to mind, but Hugo, I think, was a fast mover. Is this unprecedented for the southeast? Well, and Brian, you remember those conferences we would go to right after Hugo where they were rebuilding everything, and the engineers would show us the attics where the nails from the nail gun would go through the, the plywood but would miss the rafter. Right. <laughs> and so they rebuilt so quickly in so many locations that, that they're going to have roof damage that they probably have no ideas coming because the roofs weren't put on properly. And, and then a lot of people don't realize shingles have different codes. In Houston, we're code four. I'm sure they're in Miami, you're code four. I don't know what they are in the Carolinas, but those shingles are going to go quickly, even if they are a code four. Well, they're not uh, the houses that are built in the Carolinas in general, unless individuals say, let's build it to the Miami Building Code. And there are some people I've met there on the Barrier Island, Sullivan's Island, and other Barrier Islands in South Carolina where they were just destroyed by Hurricane Hugo, that when they put the houses back, they put them back to the Miami Building Code, or if they've built them more recently, they've done that, and they've elevated the houses. They look what happened on uh, Bolivar Peninsula uh, during Ike and, and other places that where these Barrier Islands are just kind of wiped clean of houses that aren't elevated, and even elevating them does not guarantee uh, success. So so it's uh, it's uh, difficult. Frank, uh, when you were, well, the other thing that's, that is bizarrely different here, and what we don't know as we were talking about, is whether the storm is going to stay just offshore and move from South Carolina to North Carolina, and if you believe the Euro actually puts uh, significant wind over Jacksonville let alone Savannah. So if you could imagine some uh, hurricane maintaining some amount of its strength and moving down the coast, which as far as I can think, I, I can't think of any in my mind that we've ever seen do exactly that affecting multiple cities, most multiple coastal 
cities, although storms loop all the time out in the ocean, right? But to have it do all this by the shore is uh, very unusual. Frank, can you think of any any well, storm that's done? Uh, I know some Texas storms have dumped a tremendous amount of rain because they've come in or, or stayed near the coast and stalled. But uh, this this nothing exactly like this sticks in my mind. No, but you remember when we were at a Bahamas weather conference, there was a big low pressure, just a low pressure system, just a storm in South Carolina. And because of the wind from that into the Bahamas, the beaches were closed. I don't know if you remember that right. particular conference, but you've got to think that this is going to affect Isaac in some way. That, that one of the reasons that the models are, are keeping Isaac at just a storm level is because of the wind from Florence is going to give that an upper-level shear that it's going to have to fight to some degree. So the idea that Jacksonville could be affected by wind and certainly Atlanta from this system when it's in South Carolina, certainly that's an easy reach. I don't see why that couldn't happen easily. Yeah, so we've been Uh, talking about that because here in South Florida, of course, we're all kind of interested in Isaac, as I guess you are in Texas to uh, some at least slight degree. And the morning, the 12Z uh, GFS model that came in uh, actually keeps Isaac relatively strong, brings it up over Cuba into the Gulf, and uh, takes in the long range, which is very dubious, obviously, up into the panhandle of Florida because it does not have the outflow from Florence affecting it in a significant way, where we can see the outflow from Florence affecting it right now. And the European model has, we haven't seen the the afternoon run yet uh, as we're recording this, but the the European model has kept that effect you were talking about uh, over top of Isaac to keep it from intensifying. So right now we're thinking the European maybe uh, has it right just because of what we're, we're seeing, but it does give us a little bit of pause. Yeah, I see exactly what you're talking about, and it's just going to be, it's going to be close. It's just going to be close. The timing is everything. Now, Florence sits there like the European suggests, and, and even the American sits there through Monday in the uh, Smoky Mountains, uh, then we could have some effect, but uh, you know you know how these things go. I mean, I can remember when Tropical Depression 10 fell apart in 2005 and came back as Tropical Depression 12 and came and came back as Katrina. So, you yes. know, these, these systems, they may die down a little bit, but as long as they have a circulation over warm water, they are anything but gone. Yeah, especially here at the peak of hurricane season, uh, yes, that absolutely. being two days ago. All right, Frank, let's, uh, let's talk about Harvey. Uh, it's been over a year now, just over a year, and you know, know the numbers better than I do, but I've seen reports that uh, like 200,000 homes, uh, maybe more, were damaged. And uh, many of those had to be demolished, and each one of those representing a family that needed a place to live. Where does the rebuilding stand, and how is the city doing, and, and where have the people gone that have not been able to get back home? Well, one good thing that, that just happened is we did pass a billion dollar, $1.3 billion uh, proposal that will be matched by the federal government, and that will go straight to our flood issues. Uh, our problem is getting the water from the streets to through a four-inch pipe to our bayous. That four-inch pipe needs to be a 24-inch pipe. The problem with that is if you're going to move water from one place, you have to find another place to put it so that you don't flood the people downstream. And so you have to find places to put retentions, uh, retention ponds, and that sometimes means taking houses and building big retention ponds and widening bayous and deepening bayous. But figuring all of the engineering out is first and foremost. But we are on that. There are a lot of great projects that will hopefully be completed by 2024. We can't do anything about a 7- to 10-inch rainfall on a Tuesday morning, and we get those, but we can certainly do something about this kind of massive flooding that we see coming in here. And that, that, that we're, from, from that standpoint, we're at least on it. Um, as for people that are rebuilding, more and more they are getting back in their homes. But I've been, you know, I, I speak like you do to different groups. I had a woman in tears the other day saying, please just tell me I can get through this year without a flood. If I can get through this year, I can get back in my home and it's we're raising it six feet and, and I'll be okay. And, but just get me through this year, you know, which none of us can promise, although it's looking better for Texas by the day. Our, we're usually done by the middle of October for hurricane season. 
then, and so it's looking better. But people are getting back slowly but surely. There obviously have been all those contractor issues of people, of contractors taking money, contractors saying what they're going to do and not doing. On the upside, there are the, the honest contractors that are getting people back in their homes, um, and and we're getting there. Um, we don't have uh, a bunch of homeless people or a bunch of people in tent cities or anything like that. There's still obviously people that are displaced and living with family, but. Give us, yeah, give us another year without a hurricane, and we should be pretty well back to where we were. Frank, take us back to the days just before the hurricane. There's this unbelievable, unprecedented flood that's forecast. What do you remember about those days before the storm? And could you even, you know, having, uh, you know, being a meteorologist, picture what this was going to look like after Harvey was done? No, because the difficulty is the messaging, as you know. You want to tell people that this is going to be at least 24 inches of rain, but it could well be 40. And the Euro and the American were both in agreement at 40 inches of rain. So you have the models behind you, but you're still thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm about to forecast four feet of rain. And if you, for people that may be listening to us in the Northeast or Chicago or Colorado, what if your weatherman on a Friday said, we're going to have 500 inches of snow by Monday? <laughs> because that's what you're saying. <laughs> it's such an enormous amount, and you can't imagine. We'd already been through a Memorial Day flood of 20 inches, a tax day flood of 20 inches. It wasn't widespread, but the people that got it really had gotten it hard. And so this was our third huge flood in three years that we were looking at, right down the barrel of the gun. So the right before it came in, that's the hardest part is messaging it. So I use the old rule of thumb that I learned uh, back in the day and when I first got here in 1989, that if you divide the forward motion of the storm into 100, that's how many inches of rain it can produce. So Andrew, for instance, Brian can tell you, only five inches of rain from Andrew because it was moving 20 miles an hour. So 20 into 100 is five. But you get a storm that's moving two miles an hour, two into 100 is 50 inches. And that's exactly what happened, and that's exactly what could happen with Florence. If this storm is going to take its time from Thursday to Sunday to move 150 miles, if it's going to be moving two miles, three miles an hour, divide that into 100. That's, that's 40 to 50 inches of rain, and the model forecasts are behind that. So the, it's, it's simple math, but when you, when you have that and you have – the, the motion slowing down like that, it's, uh, it's hard to get that into people's minds. And that's just the inches of rain. That doesn't have anything to do with the surge and the rivers rising and all of that rain piling up down in the valleys. So it's, it, it's going to be something there uh, in the East Coast. But when I was looking at Harvey, that was the, the real message. We knew we didn't have a windstorm. That wasn't, it wasn't going to be an Ike. That was a big windstorm. Uh, we knew we were going to have a rain. We are going to have a flood, just like New Orleans had a flood from Katrina. They didn't have a windstorm. So we knew that. So that was the message. Flood, flood, flood. Start getting ready for a flood. Yeah, Frank, uh, it's, like it's like a light year to me. You know, when, when you say four feet of rain, okay, I kind of understand that. Like I kind of understand what a light year is. I can't really right. conceptualize it. I can't really get a good picture in my head of what a light year looks like or four feet of rain falling over a specific area. How in the world did you navigate that communicating? Uh, you know, you're on your on TV giving your weather cast. What, did you use any special tools that you could share with us that, like, I, I don't know, grab a kayak and say the water's going to be this high? Or um, how did you do that? Well, um, you know, the, uh, engineering, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers has put – together some pretty good simulated slosh maps uh, the, um, of, of just what kind of, of flooding you can expect from different type hurricanes, and, and they're pretty good. I mean, we, they, they scare the heck out of you, but you say, look, all of this area is going to have water all over it, and this is and it's going to be this deep. Um, so you try to simulate with graphics this is what this water is going to look like. But, I, you know, you can't really know exactly where. I mean, my, my home didn't flood, for instance. In fact, if you look at the percentages, 8% to 11% of Houston had flooding in structures, 8 to 11%. So that's 90% that did it. Wow. Uh, I know. You won the whole city, but the ones that got But you don't know that 
that's the thing going into a forecast. You don't know exactly where that water is going to pile up. And it could be, obviously, more where the bayous is. Bayous are if you live near a river or bayou or a creek, obviously. But you get six inches of rain per hour in, in a six-hour period, then you just don't know who's going to get – nobody can withstand that. So it was hard to say exactly who was going to get flooded and who didn't. And it was the situation where one neighborhood over was flooded and one block down the street was not. So you can't you – know, going back is easy, but going forward into it, you just have to warn everybody listening, and everybody was. Here was the good thing with that. With Harvey, we didn't lose power. So everybody was connected with their cell phone and their computer and their TV, and, and they could charge it all. So we all as a community could stay connected through social media and through traditional television and radio. And so that was a huge part of saying, if this street is flooded, this street is not. If you're here, don't go anywhere. If you're here, you can make it there. And, and they're not going to have that benefit in the Carolinas. This, they're going to have an Ike and they're going to have a Harvey all at the same time. Right, and and conceivably out. much worse than an Ike, actually. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, the cell towers forget the cell tower. Good luck getting a cell signal out of there. And everybody's going to be on their cell phone anyway. So that has a jamming effect. And then you're going to have cell towers that are going to come down, along with the power lines and along with the street lights and along with the ambient light. You don't realize how much you count on ambient light when you drive somewhere. You're, you're, it's like, oh, yeah, turn left to the McDonald's because you know that that's where the McDonald's is. But when all the McDonald's lights are out, you don't have that benefit. So you get into a very well-known part of your neighborhood, and you don't know where you are. Yeah, that's what happened after Hurricane Andrew is people went out of their house, went down the block, got turned around, and, and had a hard time finding their way home because nothing looked the same. And at exactly. night, it was just pitch freaking black to where exactly. you couldn't see your hand, that's hand what they're in front of your face. And on top of that, they're going to be in three to four feet of water. Yeah, it, I mean, no, this, we just hope that really people got get have gotten to higher ground, safe higher ground in this situation because this really has the potential to be an uh, just uh, extraordinary uh, event in the Carolinas. Uh, Frank, in uh, Houston, no different than kind of the way we live our lives in, in the United States, unfortunately, as we wait for something big and bad to happen and then we react to it and and spend a lot of money, and the federal government dumps money uh, on the problem and to make it kind of go away politically as much as anything, I think. And back in the big Houston floods of 19, I've, you know, correct me if I got the years wrong, but 29 and especially 35, I think, is what uh, downtown is what prompted the building of the attics and Barker reservoirs that we became so familiar with in, in Harvey because they filled and, and overflowed as they were supposed to. Thing is, they were built out in the country back then, and now there are neighborhoods all uh, through there. So uh, you talked about the fact that there is work being done and uh, plans being drawn to improve drainage. But how about in terms of the building code in Houston? One of the things that Texas has always been, I guess, infamous is the good word for, is not uh uh, doing what uh, we did here in South Florida, which was institute an extremely strong hurricane uh, building code. Is there motion in that direction? There is for the coastal counties. If you look at Galveston County and and structures that are built closer to the ocean, uh, yes. And, and those codes are handy for wind, obviously. But those aren't the same codes that you look at for flooding. You know, flooding has to go up. Now, those codes are also, and a lot of people don't realize this, that any new structures in Harris County, any new structures, uh, in, in particular flood plains, have to go six feet above sea level. And you have to get uh, certificates of elevation uh, in, just in order to get insurance. And so the, the city is being much stricter about new structures in terms of how high they have to be. Is that the whole county? Is that all of Harris County? Is that just the city of Houston? That's the city of Houston. Oh, yeah, and okay. as you know, part of it. Yeah. we have the city and we have the county. Harris County, I don't know if you realize, Harris County has, has 4.8 million people. If we were a state, we would be the 26th state in the Union. We have a huge population in 1,700 square miles. And so we have basically half and half. About 2.2 million are in the city. The other 2.2 million are outside the city limits and still within the county. 
but we have a, ju- uh, a judge, which is basically the mayor of the county, and then we have a mayor of Houston. They fortunately work hand in hand very strongly, and they're very, um, they very much are after this as a team to try to to create better codes for both the city and the county. So it's not like, well, you do this and I'm going to do that. They're, they're, they're trying to be a very cohesive unit, and so far it's working. They're, they're really hand-in-hand hand on, on all of this. And, but, you know, time, time will tell, and administrations change, and local administrations change, and you know, different codes come with different, with different time periods in the cycle of history. So hopefully we will learn from, from experience, because we're not getting any smaller in Houston. Frank, only getting larger. Tell us about you and your staff as the event the event unfolded. I mean, it just it kept coming. This was how many days did this go? Um, you know, we started twenty four seven on I think um, I want to say Thursday night, and we didn't end it until Labor Day weekend. So a week about seven days later. So we have a five person staff, and we double teamed the, the staff. So. That there were two of us on from 12 to 12 and two of us on from 12 to 12. And then the other person w- was basically a day side, like eight to, eight to eight kind of a shift to help with graphics and social media. But it really helped because when you're filling time 24-7 as, the, as a lone meteorologist, that's a lot. But if you have a second person there that you can broadcast with, that's essential. Uh, going up to it, uh, and that helps. And then when you're in it, and one person can be in charge of the tornado warnings, and another person can be in charge of the real-time uh, radar, and here's where it is, and here's what's happening. And the other person's in charge of the rain rate, and you can throw it to that person and say, there's a tremendous line of, of feeder band coming in right now. Justin, how, what, what rain rate do we have on that? And we go to him, and he says, we got five, six, six inches per hour. We come back to me, I say, that looks like a couplet that could be producing a tornado. Do we have that yet? Yes, we do. And so you go back and forth, almost a Batman and Robin kind of uh, tip or tat, and that helps get you through a lot of it. And, it's, and it, it makes it more interesting to the viewer, and, and I think it's more comforting because they know that the, the whole staff is there and, and working 24-7. Uh, Did you stay at the station? And, oh, yeah, and the station was on you know, all the way through, and... Uh, people, we were cots in the, you know, cots in the yeah. upstairs sales department and sleeping and, and, of course, plenty stocked. We always have, television stations have the benefit of a lot of restaurants closed and they have food they got to get rid of and they, they send it our way. So um, we're always lucky in, in terms of having plenty of supplies and that, that was never a problem. You know, we, we, we have our own issues. We have reporters out there fighting the floods, trying to get from one place to another. And they, they had some hairy moments as well, trying to you know, get, get to where they were going. But fortunately, they did. And that's one of the things I worry about with these reporters. But I think every major uh, news anchor is probably down there in, in Wilmington right now. I know Lester Holt's supposed to be there. Yeah, and, and I saw, uh, yes, uh, David Muir, I think, was going down. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two. I think they're down there. And, and there's no guarantee they're going to be able to broadcast uh, you know, that's once right. this gets and going. a lot of them are in Wilmington. Uh, right, I know exactly where they are, and they're over the bridge. Right, uh, the little south of downtown Wilmington, you have to get over a bridge. Well, that bridge closes in high wind, and if you're stuck there, then you're going to have a hard time getting back to Wilmington across that bridge. I mean, it's hard to know because there are all those little islands that are connected by bridges there, and you want to be near the water because that's where the action is. But where the action is is going to get cut off sooner than later, and I hope they realize the um, really the the danger that this is going to bring their way. I know as journalists, we all think that we sit in the palm of the hand of God, but, you know, we all have to be really careful out there, and I'm sure they are being. Well, I don't, I don't know, and I agree with you, Frank, uh, because we have not had a really strong hurricane come ashore in the United States uh, that we, we— Well, since Andrew, but I'm saying that we had modern media— out trying to cover in droves right. in the era of uh, cell phone communications as opposed to some kind of radio communications. And we just haven't. Uh, you know, right. We've always sent a reporter, or occasionally, I was uh, in the 90s, they would send me. I covered uh, North Carolina storms uh, that were going up France's, I think, and uh, Fran, also uh, Fran, Bertha yeah. back in the mid-90s. Right. So you usually sent one person, either a reporter or a meteorologist, n- never an anchor. 
and, and never the national anchors until probably 10 years ago. But you're right. I don't think nobody came during Ike. I mean, they kind of came down. I know Anderson Cooper was here. But, you know, we uh, we were going through the Lehman Brothers downfall the same weekend that Ike hit. And so everyone was concerned with Wall Street and, right. and not with Main Street. And so we, we kind of covered that ourselves. <laughs> and we kept thinking the cavalry was going to come after Ike. They didn't show up. Well, I, I have a, actually a story, Frank, about uh, anchors. And, and just to finish your thought, yeah, I've been very, very concerned about the way that uh, TV stations go out with their reporters and and they don't send them with enough supplies and the possibility of getting cut off and having the reporters have to be rescued, essentially, because they don't have enough food, water, and, and provisions uh, because they're trying to get to the front lines, essentially. But here's my story. It was 1996, I think it was, Hurricane Fran. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I was the, there. The, is that the, or was it was it Fran or Floyd in 99? I uh, I can't remember one of the two. In any case, uh, CBS. I was working for CBS then, and I was the hurricane guy for CBS. And uh, it was a special version of 60 Minutes, and John Roberts was hosting it from there, and I was just a little part of the program. Well, guess what? They couldn't get the satellite signal out for John Roberts, and they said, "You got to talk. You got to talk." They're telling me, "You got to talk." And so I go on and on. Of course, you and I and all of us can go on and on about a hurricane uh, as long as they need us to talk, you know. And I probably right. talked for, for 10 minutes while they got somebody that they could put on, on TV. But I, in my sense, and they were all very amazed about that in New York, by the way, because they're not used to that kind of thing. Uh, they don't understand people to deal with this kind of stuff. But, but the difference now is that everybody is dependent on cell phones to do television and the micro and the uh, satellite systems we use are very rain fade, subject to rain fade. We don't use the old robust uh, what are called C band satellites so more, uh, so much anymore that that punch through the rain. So, in actuality, our ability to get out is uh, once it really gets bad is uh, significantly diminished in terms of communication. So it's it's kind of dangerous, I think. Uh, absolutely. I was in a, at a conference in Breckenridge in, in January and watched Brad Panovich, the meteorologist in, in Charlotte, uh, ab, a, actually do his weathercast with an iPhone. That's right. all it was, was an iPhone. And yeah, well, he set it up on a, on a little tripod and did a whole broadcast with an iPhone. So you're absolutely right. It's all, it's all cell phones and uh, what they call live view technology, which is basically a camera that can hit a satellite signal using a cell phone and send it all back and that's i'm sure that's what we're using back in the day we would send the whole satellite truck and uh, i remember cnn losing a couple as <laughs> some of these storms so yeah. they don't really do that anymore it's all very tight technology but it is totally dependent on those cell towers and of course power itself and and uh, they're going to lose both very quickly uh, if you look at the the tropical storm force winds they're going to start feeling those after midnight tonight, don't you think? And then the, it's just going to deteriorate all day tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow it's going to be it's going to be downhill, and the storm is getting bigger. All right, so, uh, you mentioned Ike. Let's go back ten years ago. So this Ike is this monster hurricane in the Atlantic, and uh, we were tracking it for more than a week. And actually, at one point, the cone aimed it right at Miami. Really? So yes. Huh. So uh, we were a little nervous for a minute, but you know, back then, just because the cone was kind of aiming at you, it was just not that big a deal because we knew that we couldn't forecast the five days out anyway. And it, just because it's aimed at Miami doesn't didn't mean it wasn't Cuba or Orlando. You know, it, it just you didn't get agitated uh, as early back then, I don't think. But then it did end up in the Gulf, and it obviously was a threat in the Gulf. Uh, Frank, what do you remember about the time when, you know, it became clear that Ike was going to be a big hurricane in the Gulf coming in your general direction? You know, when it went across Cuba, the landmass knocked it down a little bit, and then it went off Cuba and hit the loop current, which, as you know, is that warmer eddy of water right there in the Gulf that eventually becomes the Gulf Streams. It's that warm water and it's sort of the boilerplate for hurricanes. Now, you know, 2005, they all went over the loop current and exploded. And we learned that then. And, and so 2008, we see, I see Ike going over the loop current. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be uh, big trouble. And by some standards, Ike was bigger than Katrina. 
uh, if you look at some scales. And so here comes this monster storm. And, you know, at first, you know, just like you said, it was headed toward Miami. At first, it looked on Monday, say it hit on late Friday night, early Saturday. So on Monday, it looked like it might be a South Texas, Brownsville, northern Mexico. That's where the cone was going. It might be that issue, that high right. pressure would be strong enough to steer it that way. By Wednesday, I went to my managers and I said, this is ours. It is clearly ticking north with every model run, and we have to prepare for this. And so we, and so we did, and uh, we, got, you know, we got as ready as we could, and then it came right to uh, the Bolivar Peninsula. It t- we knew, as, because it was ticking north, we knew it was probably turned north before it hit Galveston, but up until the last minute, it was expected to hit the lower south end of Galveston Island, which is known as San Luis Pass. Mm-hmm. Had it done that, it would have wiped out all of Galveston Island. And it would have been worse in Houston, too. Gone. Pardon me? It would have been worse in Houston. It would have driven water up through Galveston Bay into the ship channel. Absolutely. Well. It would have been the worst-case scenario for everyone. It kicked a little, just really about, I want to say about 40 miles offshore, it made a bit of a north job, and it hit Bolivar. And, of course, Bolivar was decimated. I flew over Bolivar two days later, and honestly, Brian, I, I was like, where did it all go? I mean, where did the houses and the cars and the refrigerators and everything that is a life on this Bolivar Peninsula island, where did it go? And, of course, it went into Galveston Bay right. and got swept to Smith Point. But, it, uh, you know, it's just amazing the power of water and people – don't appreciate that, uh, but it's uh, it's amazing just in terms of physics how many the gallons of water coming at structures will just wipe them off their foundation and keep them going. And it's just uh, it was really it was really frightening. But fortunately, Galveston, from a structural standpoint, did not suffer that. They had a lot of sand everywhere, and a lot of a lot of roofs came off, and there were uh, there were a few houses that were uh, had to be torn down. There were a few fires that occurred. Power, of course, was out. And then in Houston, the winds really didn't top 60, 65 miles an hour, but that meant a lot of shingles and a lot of fences down. And, of course, power was down for three weeks across the, across the area, which is, uh, which is huge, you know, when you lose yeah. power for three weeks. Well, and that's because, the, because it was, was only a Category 2 storm, even though it produced that monstrous storm surge. So places right. subject and to storm surge got destroyed. Places subject to just wind got damaged. Did that affect Correct. the you know people getting prepared for this? Did, did people look at Ike? I, I don't recall what Ike was when it was in the Gulf, uh, but did people look at it and say, "Oh, it's just a Cat Two. Uh, don't this isn't. We'll write out a Cat Two. Don't worry about that. We start getting worried at Cat Three, Cat Four, or was it a Cat Four and or, and then it weakened just before shore? Uh, well, you know, the the mistake people made, and not everybody, but the, most people evacuated because they were ordered to. We'd had an Eduardo uh, two months before, and there was a lot of evacuation, and Eduardo ended up doing virtually nothing. So now you have Ike coming, and the mindset is, well, come on, you know, we did this once and it was nothing, so let's just see how bad this is. Like I said, we knew this was going to turn north, and so on. a lot of people on Thursday thought to themselves, well, this is not expected to hit until late Friday, early Saturday. So I'll get up tomorrow morning, Friday morning, and if it's still headed my way, well, I'll get in the car and I'll go. Well, sure enough, they get up Friday morning, and the storm surge in advance has, was already there. The roads to get out of Galveston and Bolivar were already covered in water. So if you waited until Friday morning to escape, you were already cut off. The Coast Guard had about 359 helicopter rescues until they just couldn't rescue anymore because it was unsafe for them. And so people had to ride it out. And 87 people died writing it out because there was nowhere to go. And that's the problem that they're going to face with Florence is they're going to, they're going to write it out and they're going to find out that, that if they wait too late to get out of there, if they don't get out of there today, this is really the last day. Uh, tomorrow, that storm surge, and they keep saying, oh, it's going to be 9 to 12 feet. People think it's a tsunami, and it's not a tsunami. It's water that will slowly rise as this hurricane gets closer. And so you can have two feet of water on the road tomorrow. Yeah, and it's tomorrow already morning, two feet of water on the road means you can't leave. Yeah, you can't. So if the, don't wait until you're about to get 13 feet of water, thinking, "Oh, I can, I can wait until 
Friday morning, you can't because it's going to start tomorrow, that storm surge coming in, that, that water rising. Don't you think, Brian? I think uh, absolutely. It's already rising, as a matter of fact, on the entire east coast of the U.S. Frank, uh, of course, Houston was home to the epic evacuation in Hurricane Rita, which was Category 4 hurricane aimed right at the city at the time the evacuation was ordered. Don't you think uh, that was just uh, three years before, Ike? Don't you think that played into evacuation issues in Ike as well? And I know the Galveston mayor because uh, I talked to the judge in, in Harris County about this, the Galveston mayor was really reluctant to call another uh, evacuation, and there was a little tussle to get that underway with, with Ike coming. Uh, and, right. But because Rita was in everybody's mind. Because she was evacuated for Eduardo right. and, and, and felt like she had egg on her face. And so then when I came along, she was reluctant to, to send everybody off the island. But on Thursday... She did, she but did, it, yes. again, by Friday morning, it was too late. Right, but don't you think that Rita hung over Ike, the, you know, the, you know, people thought of as being a fiasco, that's a whole different discussion, but, but the, this monstrous evacuation where people died in their cars uh, trying to get to Dallas, didn't that contribute to people's concern and thinking? Absolutely, and what, what had happened is during Rita, the mayor then in Houston sort of made this off-the-cuff remark saying, you know, if you had flooding issues during Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, then you should probably leave as Rita is coming. Well, that just sent everybody on the roads. And, of course, you have evacuation zones, but it's almost like Independence Day when Will Smith goes out and, and to get the paper and everybody's leaving. Well, uh, if everybody's leaving, uh, even if you're not in the evacuation zone, aren't you going to leave too? And then, so that neighborhood has left. Well, shouldn't this neighborhood leave? And shouldn't that? And so this domino effect of, I'm going to leave if they're going to leave, it happened. And that's what happened with Rita. Everybody started leaving. And it was. It was, I mean, a contraflow on the roads and no gas and 10 hours to go 100 miles. It was just, it was terrible. It was a terrible situation. So, yes, once we get to Ike, People are a little reluctant to get into that situation. It's not being encouraged. Get off the island, certainly. And we first got into the whole run from the water, hide from the wind. And that's pretty much what everyone did. Um, and like luckily said, the wind wasn't terrible. Because not everybody left. But uh, I think some people thought that they could hang in there. But, but unfortunately, that just wasn't the case. Frank, I have one more question for you. Uh, I've been to Boulevard Peninsula. In fact, I have a pretty close tie to it. So one of my very best friends from college got married there. They, their family uh, had a house. Uh, it was a house on stilts. That was. They, they have these kind of cool little communities where these houses are set up in little blocks. And uh, anyway, they had one, and they lost it completely. And I, I mean, sure. swept bare. There's there was nothing left. So right. anyway, uh, last summer they got married on Boulevard Peninsula. That's, the family has since rebuilt and. Uh, a lot of people there have. You, you go to Boulevard Peninsula now, and you see these beautiful new homes. Some of you still see you still see a lot of destruction from Ike, but then you also see this like rebuilding. And they, I asked about this. I said, "Hey, well, you guys just lost a home, and now you're rebuilding right on the beach. What have you done differently?" And uh, they said, "Well, we are one foot higher. the 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 bottom of the floor." Uh, is one foot higher on, on the stilts than it was before. And uh, I think that the thickness of the beams had increased a little bit. So have they, is this an answer? Or is this just wishful thinking for the next well, time that something comes Well, let me tell you something through? that Brian Norcross said to me back in 2003. Because I had just finished building a home in Galveston. And I was very proud of that house. And I told Brian, you know, my studs are 8 inch on center, not 16. I have no large windows. I have a hip roof, no gables. I have 3,300 hurricane straps inside and outside the house. What do you think of that? And Brian Norcross said, well, you still built it out of wood. (laughs) (laughs) And I've told that story ever since, and it's the darn truth. I mean, as long as we build squares, we don't build square airplane wings because they don't fly. Wind hates squares. So as long as we build squares out of wood on the beach, they're going to go away with the wind. And that's just a fact of the matter. Mm. And uh, I don't know anything. I don't, know how, I don't care how high you build it. In fact, most of those houses on Bolivar that you mentioned are now 20 feet high, 
20 feet above sea level, I think, is the code down there now. Generally, it has been 16, but now it's even higher. But, you know, you could escape the water uh, to some degree, um, but you're not going to escape the wind as far as damage is concerned. I mean, just, we, you know, there are a lot of those, like we talked about Isaac, the, in the Caribbean, they build out of cement, and the hurricanes come through and they wash everything down, and they're back in business four hours later. It's, uh, they know how to build for storms, and here, here in America, we seem to want pretty things, and we want them to have a certain style, and we build them square, and we build them out of wood. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Frank, uh, before we let you go, I, I like to ask everybody this. What was the, the weather event, or was there a weather event that got you in the weather business? Well, I will say that the first hurricane I went through was Dora in Jacksonville in 1964, and I remembered the wind and the rain and the pine trees snapping, and I looked at my mother then. I said, I know what I want to be when I grow up, and she said, what? And I said, a Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) But I've always been fascinated by weather. I'll tell you what got me in the weather business was the Weather Channel, because in 1981, they started sucking all of the meteorologists away from their stations. 80, them 80, in Atlanta. 83, 82 or 83, I think, yeah. Yes. And it was 81, but it was May of 81. Oh, maybe they were started hiring, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, well, yeah, and they were, they were pulling all in. One of them was Bruce Edwards. Right. Uh, and uh, he was the chief at WDBJ, so he went, and Robin Reed got that job. And so there was this weekend opening, and they called me and said, you want to be the weekend weatherman? And I, I went after it and um, have enjoyed it ever since. That was back in 1982. Wow. And that, that really, I have the Weather Channel to thank <laughs> for my, my career. There you go. So, that's for sure. All right. I guess that counts as a weather event in some, yeah, in some a, books. Weather Channel is a huge weather event. What do you mean? Yeah, yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, Frank Billingsley, Chief Meteorologist at uh, KPRC NBC in Houston. Thanks so much for being on the podcast this week. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Thank you. Take care. So, yeah, Houston, I mean, is a disaster a minute. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those places that is just very, very vulnerable. I mean, as is Miami, Fort Lauderdale, South mm. Florida, southwest coast of Florida, the Florida Keys, the Tampa area, the New Orleans area, uh, Charleston, um, you know, much of this uh, coastline is just extremely vulnerable uh, to bad weather. This podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. So just a quick mention of our, you know, we try and mention of South Florida hurricanes that happened this uh, week. And turns out it was on this day, uh, 73 years ago, 1945. It was just after VJ Day. Uh, which had uh, ended World War II, and a hurricane that now is estimated to have been a Category 4 came in just south of Houston, but on uh, Houston, of uh, Homestead, mm. but on an angle that essentially took it over Homestead to the northeast. So it was a little different direction than Andrew, not as quite as powerful as Andrew, but the... Uh, and it didn't have as as big effect because South Dade was not as populated. But the the big thing that happened during that storm and what that storm is really re- uh, remembered for is where uh, Zoo Miami is today, that big empty space down there. When you go down the turnpike and you look over toward the zoo and you see some pine trees still sticking up, a lot of them actually were taken down by Andrew, and, and that was the end of them. But... In that space, there's the what's called the Gold Coast Railroad Museum. You see this huge cement pillar sticking up. If you ever go down to Zoo Miami, look at this huge cement pillar. It has some radio antennas on, on top of it now, right next to the Gold Coast Railroad Museum. Well, that was that's the last piece of one of the blimp hang- hangers that mm. was at the Richmond Naval Air Station. And that that area was uh, it's still today called Richmond Heights. The neighborhoods near there are called Richmond Heights. But that's from what was called Naval Air Station Richmond at the time. We generally call it Richmond Naval Air Station today. And that there's a, there's a lot of cement out there. Those were the runways and whatnot. And they had these huge hangars for these blimps. And these blimps were there to patrol the waters around the U.S. for Nazi submarines. Hmm. And up to the time that they had put those blimps in service, 
Nazi submarines were uh, sinking hundreds of ships a month. And they put the blimps up, and the blimps essentially stopped that. And there's kind of an epic story of uh, the blimps weren't supposed to really attack the submarines because what could a blimp do? Yeah. You know? But one did, and the, uh, the submarine shot down the blimp. The crews survived, both of them. And the crew act- survived the blimp being shot down? She shot, I guess they must have had some sort of way to float once the, the blimp hit the water. In any case, the captain of the blimp and the captain of the submarine met right. met many decades later, like uh. 50 or 70 years later, some some incredible time later. I remember when that, uh, that happened. Anyway, so there were 25 of these monstrous blimps in the hangar that were said to be hurricane-proof. And there were 300-plus aircraft in there. And there were a whole bunch of people because everybody thought it was hurricane-proof. Well, one of the hangars caught on fire in the hurricane, and the fire spread to the other two hangars. So all three hangars burned down. All the blimps burned up. All the aircraft and the vehicles and everything else was in those hangars. Wow. Burned up. It was this conflagration. Uh, fortunately, the people got out. Uh, but... But it was this, that kind of end, uh, really a kind of a bitter end to this great thing of these blimps that were patrolling the American waters during the Second World War looking for Nazi submarines that, that uh, the hurricane ended. It sounds like a movie. It is. It is like a movie. I mean, you could hardly you could hardly make it up. You, you know. Yeah. yeah. Really, really kind of crazy. So uh, that's our podcast for this week. Uh, we're back to work on Hurricane Florence and uh, and waiting for the model runs this afternoon. Yeah, we'll see what next week what the what we'll have to talk about. But mm. yeah, it's. Uh, it's going to be epic. We don't think there's any question about that. If there's something you would like us to talk about here on the podcast, uh, send us an email at weatherpod at WPLG.com. Uh, weatherpod, right together, at WPLG.com. And one more reminder, the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Drive. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. I'm Brian Norcross with Luke Doris here at the Local 10 WPLG Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week thinking about our friends in the Carolinas and in the Caribbean. And we'll talk to you again next week on the podcast.